0: And I am so delighted that you chose to worship with us today. Today I'm speaking about Lydia. She was a woman of the water. Her work was connected with the water. Her worship was connected with the water. And as we'll see today, eventually we'll see that she will testify to a changed life by her own baptism in water. Lydia is a woman of purple. She was a dealer in purple cloth, the Bible tells us, and she was a, a merchant. She was probably very wealthy. She dealt with a very exquisite, expensive, elaborate kind of textiles. Her, the purple fabric was extremely, extremely costly and very time-consuming to produce, and so she was probably serving royalty or very, people very high up on the social status ladder. Lydia had skill as a dye maker and as a seller of textiles. She was an immigrant herself. She lived uh, lived in modern-day Turkey and then traveled around the edge of the sea to the eastern side of Greece, where she moved into a place called Philippi, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Lydia, being around the Mediterranean Sea, her, her process of dye making was rooted in so, in, in a process called the Tyrian purple dye process. The Tyrian purple dye was a special kind of purple. Now, other ancient cultures and civilizations had different ways of making purple, different herbs and flowers and other ways and, and uh, organic materials that they used to make purple dye, but Tyrian purple was produced in the Mediterranean area, and it was a particularly excellent quality of purple dye. It was known for having a very rich luster, a very deep hue. It was known for having vibrant color. It was known for being colorfast so it wouldn't fade or it wouldn't wash away. It was a beautiful, rich, deep purple. So I bet you're wondering how Tyrian purple dye was produced. I thought you'd never ask. So this is how it was made. Tyrian purple came from uh, mollusks, from a kind of snail in the water. So they would go to the beach, they'd go down by the river, and they would go into the shallow water, and they would need to find literally thousands of these snails in order to make a really small amount of purple dye. They would gather these shells, then they would crack them open and remove the snail from the shell. Uh, other ancient excavation sites have found piles of these empty broken shells in this region. So we, we have archaeological evidence that this was a thing that people did all the time. So they would take out the snails and they would take the snail, put the snail in water. Then, this is probably a little too much information, they would, there was a little gland in the throat of this little snail. And when they would press that gland, they would extract juice from it and put that juice in a basin snail juice. Then they put that basin in the sunlight. And over a period of time, that juice in that basin, that extract, would it started off clear, then it would turn white, and then as it was exposed to sun, it would turn yellowish green, and then over time it turned to green, then it turned to violet, and then it turned to red. Tyrian purple, that particular hue was kind of a range of what we would think of as purple to like a purplish red today. And so it was a very specific process. You had to watch it very carefully in order to make sure that it was removed from the sun at just the right moment. This was how Lydia made her Tyrian purple dye. So we know these things about Lydia, and the Bible tells us some other things about her. We know that Lydia was not only a wealthy businesswoman who dealt with purple textiles— we also know that she was something called a God-fearer. The scripture defi- describes her as a God-fearer. Now, God-fearer is a technical term. It doesn't mean somebody who's afraid of God, as we tend to think of fearing God today as being afraid. It meant somebody who honored God, who reverenced God, who thought God was awesome and holy. And there was a particular description that described people uh, around, like, the, the first to third century B.C., where this people who identified as God-fearers were people who said, now, I'm not a Jew, but I like the Jew's God. I like the Lord. I like the Lord God. So there'd be people who'd say, I, I'm, I don't want to convert to Judaism. I don't want to do all the rules. I don't want to do the whole circumcision thing. I don't want to go through the Jewish thing. But I like the God of the Jews. Now, this was pretty noteworthy in, in, in Lydia's time because here she is living in ancient, and what we now know is ancient Greece. So she's surrounded by Greek gods and Roman gods and all the polytheistic gods and goddesses everywhere. But there were a few people here and there throughout this area who had heard about the God of the Jews and had decided, I want to be a God-fearer. And so Lydia, like some others around her, worshipped one God, the Lord God, and she prayed to this God, and, and this, this was her her religious distinction. She was a god fearer. So we have Lydia, who is successful she 's influential in her town it 's thought that she's p- there is a known Dyers guild, like a guild of war craftsmen who are part of making dyes that was in this time in this region at this time, and so it 's assumed that Lydia was part of this. She's influential. She's wealthy. She's a female immigrant business owner. She's a head of households, we read a little bit later in the scripture. But even more importantly, Lydia is a God-fearer. She is a worshiper. She is a believer. She is a prayer, as we will see in the scriptures. Every Sabbath, she goes to worship. Lydia doesn't have any obvious sins. She seems like she's a pretty good person. She doesn't ever hit bottom in this story. Lydia likes God. Lydia is a fan of God. She likes God. And yet, as we will see in this passage in just a moment, there is something in Lydia's life, in her spiritual life, that's incomplete. There's somehow a disconnect with God for her. Lydia was missing something. Let's dig into the scripture for today. We are looking at the book of Acts, chapter 16. If you have Bibles or a Bible app on your phone, feel free to look that up. Otherwise, the scripture will be on the screen behind me. And we're looking specifically at Acts, chapter 16. Now, this part of the book of Acts, it's, it's in the New Testament, this part of the book of Acts is told by the Apostle Paul and his companions. they It's kind of like a travel diary, because at this point in their ministry, they're traveling around the the world closest to them, and they're ta- it telling people about Jesus. They're telling God-fearers about Jesus. They're telling Jews about Jesus. They're telling Gentiles about Jesus. And, and they're just tell- teaching people the good news about Jesus, that Jesus can make life radically different, that Jesus can make everything better and new and give us hope. And so today's passage begins with their travel diary. They were trying to figure out where to go. At this point, Paul and his companions had not yet entered into uh, Europe. So this would be their first move out of more of a Middle Eastern area into Europe. And we read about this in Acts 16, verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And there's a bunch of geography here. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. Now this is where today's passage really begins, verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. So Paul and Silas and Luke and the rest of his companions, they go to look for other Jews, they go to look for other God-fears, and they, th- they assume, they expect to find a place of prayer down by the river. So they go down to the river and they think somewhere around there there's probably a place of prayer. Now what is this that they're talking about, this place of prayer? There was a, a thing in Greek called the prosuke, that's the Greek word for it, prosuke, which means prayer house. This was when there weren't enough Jews around to have a formal synagogue, and so this prosuke, this prayer house, was kind of like a little beach house located on the water, and it was a house of worship designed to be a a place for prayer. So on Sabbath, on once a week, people would go to this little prayer house and have prayer together. Now, it's formal, not as fancy as a synagogue, just a, a simple prayer house. And so when Paul and his companions would go around to different areas, they'd go looking for these places. Where, where might believers in God meet? Where could we find other people who are interested in God, who are paying attention to God? So they, they expect to find a place of prayer, and it says in at the end of verse 13, we sat down, once they got there, we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. They find a people, they say we have a message, we've got some things to share with you, and the women said teach us. Verse 14, one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. And then there's this very interesting sentence. It says, The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So imagine this. They're sitting in this prosuke, They're sitting in this house of prayer. They can hear the water rustling by outside the door. Perhaps there were birds chirping, seagulls, perhaps. And they're listening to Paul teach. And some curious things happen as Paul begins to teach. He talks about Jesus and how Jesus is God's son. And he talks about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit has been given to all people who believe in Jesus to change us and to make us new. And he explains how Jesus makes a difference in our lives, how Jesus can deal with the brokenness and the pain and the hurt and the wrong and the stuff the stuff we've been born into, the stuff that we have done ourselves, and how Jesus makes a difference. And he describes a a life that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, a life that is different, a life in which we're not just trying to do things in our own strength, but a, a supernaturally empowered partnership with God. And as he is teaching these things, Lydia is listening. Lydia is listening. This leader, this doer, this person who gets things done, this person who manages people in a business, this person who is an artisan, a craftsman, she, she listens. And as she listens, God does something. The Lord opened her heart. Anytime we experience a spiritual hunger a spiritual stirring anytime we have some sort of awakening or some sort of desire or inclination toward God or toward Jesus or toward the Holy Spirit or toward the toward those kinds of things anytime we sense some sort of movement like that that is by the initiation of God that is God calling out to you that is God specifically seeing you and saying, I want you. God calls out to us. God initiates relationship with us. It is always his initiation. We love because he first loved us. It all began with him. Any inclination we have toward God is because God is calling out to us. And Lydia is listening. And God opens her heart. We have this, this God fearer. Lydia is a worshiper. Lydia is a prayer. She's praying every Sunday. She, or she's praying every Sabbath. She's, she's doing religious services every week. She's showing up. She, she has said, I'm a God fearer in a place where a lot of people aren't. She's taken a stand and yet she has been missing something. Lydia up to this point has been a fan of God but not a follower. She she's she likes God. She believes the right things. But there's been something that she's missed. As I thought about this for us, uh, and I think about what it means for us to be God-fearers, but maybe not followers. It, a God-fearer was a very specific thing in history. We're specifically saying, uh, we, we, belie- we pray to the Jewish God, but we're not going to do circumcision, we're not going to do all of the Jewish festivals. We'll do some of the Jewish festivals. It's a little bit of a different thing for us today. But I do think that what we re- can relate to is people who have all the right thoughts and all the right knowledge about God but we don't follow him. We, we'll come to church and we'll cheer and we'll say, yeah, yeah, God, God, we like God. But then when it comes to actually living with him, there's a disconnect. We have the right things that we maybe do when we're in Christian circles, but you know, deep down, you're not following Jesus. Your life isn't, isn't actually changing how you live. You're not actually following him. Kyle Eidelman has written a book called Not a Fan. And he writes this, It may seem that there are many followers of Jesus, but if they were honestly to define the relationship they have with him, I am not sure it would be accurate to describe them as followers. It seems to me that there is a more suitable word to describe them. They are not followers of Jesus, they are fans of Jesus. And I would suggest to you that following Jesus takes more than mental agreement. It takes more than intellectual assent, intellectual beliefs in the right kind of doctrine and theology. It calls for movement. It calls for life. It calls for action. It calls for obedience. It calls for how you live. I think too many of us have separated this message of believe from the message of follow. And we think, well, if I just believe the right things, then I'm all good. Jesus says, no, I said follow me. I said, follow me. I said, take up your cross and follow me. Yes, believe the right things. Lydia's not getting bashed for believing the wrong stuff. She, she's going to keep on believing. She's going to keep on worshiping. She's going to keep on praying. Keep on believing but let's follow too. And what happens here is Lydia's heart is opened, and she realizes this thing that's been missing is following Jesus. For Lydia, she didn't know about Jesus yet, and there might be some people here who don't know about Jesus yet, and hopefully you can hear about him today. For others, we might resonate with Lydia is following now, which is different from what she did before. And I think there are a lot of us today in this area of West Michigan in church circles where we're here because it's what we do. But are we actually following Jesus with our lives? Anytime you want more of God, it's because the Lord is calling out to you. So let's listen and pay attention. Let me talk about three characteristics of the following life. What exactly does it look like if we're following Jesus versus if we're not following Jesus? What is the difference between being a follower of Jesus and and being a a fan of Jesus? Let's look at some lessons from the example of Lydia. Characteristics of the following life, point one. The follower follower isn't leading. The follower doesn't get to lead. I'm going to say that one more time. The follower, that's supposed to be you. You don't get to be in charge. This means that if you're going to follow Jesus, you don't get to, fo- to lead your own life. This means you don't get to call the shots and h- make the direction, set the calls for your own life. If you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus does those things, and you get to follow him for your life. Followers don't lead. Followers follow the one leader. Most of us here are very American. We are American consumers, and we think that we can just pick out Jesus when we want him. Oh, I, I want to get close to God today, so I'm going to go and I'm going to make that happen. I'm going to go and get a little bit of Bible in me, so I'm just going to go and I'm going to that, make that happen. Lydia put herself in the position of listening, but ultimately it was the Lord who opened her heart. And we think we can just get God on demand whenever we want. But God says, you follow me. You follow me. and You pay attention to what I'm doing in your life. How often do we come to God and we say, God, I need you to do this thing. God, I need it. God, I need it. And we beg God for that thing. We beg God for that thing. And it doesn't happen. And God's like, I don't want to give you that thing. I want to give you this thing. This is what it means to follow Jesus. The follower doesn't lead. This takes some humility. <laughs> This takes some self-awareness. This takes some paying attention to the, to the leading initiative of our own souls and in a decision to be in submission to God. What does your spiritual life look like? Are you making decisions about what it's going to be like? Or is your first thing following Jesus? Are, are you going where Jesus says to go? Are you saying the words that Jesus says for you to say? Are you cutting out the things in your life that Jesus says you need to cut out? Or are you deciding that you're going to keep some things in your life that he doesn't want there? You're just saying you know better. Are, Are you saying the words that he wants you to say? Are you agreeing with him when he says something's a problem but you don't want to admit it? Following Jesus looks like letting him be in control. Lydia, her heart is opened to the Lord. In verse 15, after her heart is opened to the Lord, verse 15, it says, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. Lydia's listening, the Lord opens her heart, and then what does she do next? She gets baptized. She says, I'm all in. I'm a follower, here I am, I'm gonna. here's some water, let's let, baptize me now. And so she and everyone else with her who is listening also is baptized too. Point number two, the follower's life is marked by baptism. If you've been around City Life the last couple weeks, we've been talking about baptism and just digging into the meaning of it and, and, and the significance of baptism and what it, the difference between just being baptized versus living baptism a baptized life, a life that's characterized by your baptism. And some of you are followers of Jesus, but you haven't been baptized yet. And I would challenge you that it's time that you need to follow Jesus in this baptism that he's called you to because of what it means for you. Let's dig into what it means for you. Letter A, so the follower's life is marked by baptism. Letter A, baptism publicly proclaims that you are not just a fan, but you're a follower. Baptism says it out loud. Lydia doesn't get baptized secretly in a swimming pool in somebody's secluded backyard with nobody watching. She gets baptized publicly with people, with witnesses, people who who could see her, who weren't even the God-fearers that she was worshiping with. Other people passing by could see this happening. So here we're at the water where Lydia's workers go to work, and the Sabbath where Lydia and her household goes to worship. Now here is her baptism, And she goes into the water to witness. She is the first female mentioned by name in scripture to be baptized. She's the first European Christian in in all of Europe to be mentioned in scripture. It's not like she has a lot of other people paving the way. She says, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to let it be known. I believe in Jesus. He's opened my heart, and I will follow him. Baptism is a public statement. Letter B, baptism marks your life in Christ. It's a moment, it's an initiation into a new way of living. It is a sign of change. Letter C, baptism often shows the movement of the Holy Spirit in groups we see here and we see in lots of places in scripture that somebody decides they're going to follow Jesus and other people do it with them. They do it in a big group. Now what is this whole big group project thing that happens when when other people decide to follow Jesus too? Was it they're just coerced into doing it? No, they're making their own decisions as well, but there is a movement of the Holy Spirit drawing people together toward the same thing. The Holy Spirit frequently likes to work in groups. The Holy Spirit frequently likes to work in in community. It's a a sign of spiritual revivals as as the study of revivals go through history that revivals never begin privately. They begin in a group. And here it's her household. And it would be through this household that the Philippian church would be established and it would be to this Church that then meets in this household. It would be this church that would be the recipient of the letter of Philippians in the New Testament. Baptism often shows the movement of the Holy Spirit among groups. In letter D, baptism is a unifying act that makes everybody equal before God. When we have our baptism tank here at City Life, we, we do baptism in a variety of ways here, uh, but we most frequently will immerse people in a, a tank of water in our baptismal and then bring them up, and we, this gives us the picture of death to self, burial, and resurrection, raised to new life. It's this picture of identifying with Jesus in that. This is a unifying act. Everybody goes through the same process no matter how old you are, no matter what gender you are, Everybody goes through the same process no matter if you are uh, currently in a state of experiencing homelessness or if you are currently in a state of not experiencing that. Everybody goes through the same process no matter what kind of job you have, what kind of education you have. It doesn't matter who you are. We all get baptized in the same way because we're all being baptized in the same one body of Christ. Same with Lydia. Lydia doesn't get a special baptism because she's rich. Lydia gets the same baptism as her workers' as the children that were probably part of her household they all are baptized into Christ together it is a unity it's a saying we are one in Christ and one with each other the follower a follower's life is marked by baptism the follower doesn't lead the follower is baptized and the third point is this the follower life is very different from the fan life. The follower life is very different from the fan life. Now, I I said this before, but Lydia was already worshiping God, believing in God, praying to God. But when she starts following him, her life changes a lot. And I think some of us are living lives that reflect that we are fans but not followers of God because our lives aren't all that different. For a fan, when the service is over, you finish cheering for the God that you like and enjoy, and then you go home. For the follower, when the service is over, you go home and you're, you keep seeking the Holy Spirit, and then you act on everything the Holy Spirit tells you to do. Now, some of us have not honed skills and practices of paying attention to God in our lives. Maybe we've had a moment, but we haven't grown in that. We haven't followed Jesus into deeper things. And so if you are not praying and listening for the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, listening to the Holy Spirit's prompts, you're not going to be able to know how God's leading you. If you are not reading the Scripture and immersing yourself in the Scripture, which is God's Word, you will not know how God is leading you. Following Jesus necessitates you listening to his voice, and you cannot listen to his voice unless you know what he is saying. And so followers live a very different life. Lydia's life radically changes when she starts following Jesus. Now, here's what happens in the rest of the book, uh, in the rest of chapter 16 in the book of Acts. I'm just going to kind of summarize some of this. So Paul and his companions, they all stay at Lydia's house. They're there for for a while, it seems, and uh, they're teaching people. They're Uh, Getting immersed in Scripture, they're explaining the the Scriptures to them. They're this is what it means to follow Jesus, and so they're there for a while. And one day, it describes how Paul and Silas are walking down the road, and they come across a slave girl, not not part of Lydia's household, a slave girl who had an evil spirit, and this slave girl was earning a lot of money for her owners because she's doing fortune telling. And this girl would follow Paul and his companions. She'd follow them through the streets of Philippi shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God. They're telling you how to be saved. Now, none of that's untrue. That is what they were doing. But Paul, she she did this over and over and over, the scripture says, for many days. And it says, finally, Paul was so troubled that he turned around and he said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. Then this Little slave girl is delivered of this evil spirit, and her slave owners are deprived of their means of making money. And they're not happy, and they press charges and drag them, drag Paul and Silas into the marketplace to face the authorities. So they face the magistrates, there's a mob that begins to form. Paul and Silas are stripped of their clothes. They're severely beaten. And then they're thrown in prison. And the jailer of the prison says uh, is told to guard them carefully. So he puts them in an inner cell in the prison and he fastens their feet in stocks so they really can't escape. Well, in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas, what are they doing? It, the scripture says they're praying and they're singing. Because they know that following Jesus, this is just how it goes with following Jesus. Life sometimes gets more complicated when you follow Jesus because now you have an enemy that you are working against actively. And so they are praying and they are singing and in the middle of their praising God in these circumstances, their God sends a divine earthquake that shakes the shackles off their feet and causes the prison walls to crumble and all of the prisoners, including Paul and Silas, are set free. Paul and Silas don't run. They stay there. They tell all the other prisoners to stay there. And when the jailer discovers that, d- the jailer is ready to end his life. He thinks this is the end of it for him. And the jailer says, when he sees they're still there, he says, I want what you have. Tell me how to be saved. And then in the middle of the night, he takes Paul and Silas to his home. It doesn't say what he does with the other prisoners. I always kind of wonder about that. <laughs> Sets them free. I don't, I don't know what he does. Puts them back in jail. I don't know. But anyway, he takes Paul and Silas to his home. And he feeds them and he, he washes their wounds and he says, tell me how I can be saved. Because the Lord opened his heart and he was listening. And then he and all of his household are baptized. So the next day, Paul and Silas are officially released from prison. And there's a whole lot of drama that goes along with that. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. But they eventually are released and they return to Lydia's house. And it says in Acts sixteen forty, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. Paul and Silas said, "We're going to leave some of our company here at Lydia's house to keep on doing the work that is started, and we're, we're going to move on because it's not so great for us to be here anymore. So we're, we're going to move on." Do you understand that Lydia's life has changed a lot since she became a follower? She's now housing ex-cons in her home. She's now hosting a group of foreign men in her home. She's hosting meetings now where they worship a new Jewish Messiah that most of their neighbors have never heard of before. Lydia's leading the way here. And the follower life is very, very different from the fan life. Nobody bothered her before. Nobody asked these questions before. Nobody was getting flogged or imprisoned or tested before. The follower life is different from the fan life. It's harder, but truer. Let's talk about us for a minute. Mark, come on up. Let's talk about us. Because when I think about being a fan of God, believing in him, liking him, even showing up to church a lot. I think of Grand Rapids as a pretty great place to be a fan of God. A great place. It's, it's easy to be a Christian here. I, it's, it's a great place to be a Wesleyan, a part of a Wesleyan church. It's a really great place to be reformed. It's a great place to be spiritualistic. You've got lots of options for being A fan of Jesus here. But it's a whole different story, church, to be a follower. And sometimes when we're surrounded by fans, and being a fan of Jesus is the way that most people around us seem to be doing faith, it's especially hard to realize that following him is that radically different. Lydia, once she starts following Jesus, she she gets a whole new set of problems. (laughs) But also, when she starts following Jesus, she gets a whole new set of of priorities. Jesus gives us hope that life can be radically different. He gives us hope that there is a healing that only He can do. He gives us hope that there is a deliverance, a deliverance from evil that only He can give. He shows us that our priorities can be different, that our, our purpose is different. He shows us the difference of what it means when, when we're not the ones in charge of our lives, but when we're actually paying attention to the leader who's giving the communication. That's when things are changed. When we become the kind of people who learn to listen and to pay attention, to understand the word of God, and to do what the word says, James, one of my favorite passages in James chapter 4 says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. <laughs> this is what it means to follow Jesus, to do it, to live it. Not just intellectual assent, not just beliefs, by having a heart that follows, having a heart that has been opened to the Lord, having a life that is in step with the Holy Spirit. It's being, when you receive Christ, you are given the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you. Following Jesus is learning to understand how that Holy Spirit is growing in you and leading you and doing more. There's so much more Holy Spirit that wants to be manifested in you than what you even realize. I think that many of us including many who are in, in the church or those who are part of the prosukes, the prayer houses. There are lots of people who really like Jesus. Perhaps, perhaps that's you, and maybe you sense that something is missing or lacking. But there's more that you're just not grasping. For some, it might be like Lydia, where she did not have a full understanding of Jesus. And she did put her belief in Jesus for the first time. But I think, and and that might relate to some of you here, but I think there are more of us here who who would, we are believers in Jesus. We are Christians. It's not that we're not Christians. We're not real, consistent followers. And I believe that Jesus is calling us to more. Jesus is calling us to less less of ourselves, less of our own will, less of our own plans, and more surrender, more following, more of his word in our lives. This is the baptized life, Christians, a life of following. And the challenge for us today is to move from being a fan to following in a new way, following in a deeper way, And so my question for you is, how is the Lord opening your heart to respond? Would you please stand where you are and bow your heads and close your eyes? And I invite you to say to the Lord, Lord, how how are you moving in my heart? God what are you trying to open up in me? God, what kind of following are you calling me to? What kind of holy Spirit stuff am I, am I maybe missing? God, what do you want for me? you might be you, you might not have put your faith in Jesus yet and if not, I, ho- I hope you will today. I hope you will. Put your faith in Christ and receive the salvation that he offers. But you might also be a Christian. And if that's you, I believe that the Holy Spirit is prompting many of you as well to follow more fully, more deeply, more yieldedly. With your heads still bowed, uh, there are a few prayer partners who are going to be available at the front and on the sides of the sanctuary. And we're going to take a few minutes. We're not going to rush through this time. We're going to take a few minutes for you to explore with God how he might be stirring you. Sometimes it's helpful to share with another, to tell somebody else what you're going with, and going thi- thinking about or, or processing. And I'd encourage you to go anytime during the song that we're going to sing and go speak with one of these people, Or simply come and just kneel here and pray and do business with God. I I like to invite you out of your seats and to kneel here because like baptism, it's a public statement of saying, I'm following Jesus. I'm getting called out of my comfort zone. I'm following him, and I'm just just saying it. And this is part of obedience and submission for me to just follow Jesus in this way. So as we sing, as we sing this song, pray, come kneel. Speak with a prayer partner. Ask for prayer. Ask questions. If you'd like to receive Christ, they can help you do that. If you just like prayer support, they can do that. If you just want to make a statement of saying, I'm following Jesus, come forward and we can do that. Let's worship together and sing.